We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Okay, we're going to jump into 1 Timothy. We continue our series in 1 Timothy, and we are in chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. We continue our series on the household of God, and this text concerns widows in the congregation. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. I'll read our text, and then we'll get into it. First Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the husband of one wife, or having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that your word continues to speak to us, and we pray that your spirit, your presence would be with us, not only to understand the word of God, but to live it, to be transformed by the hearing of the word, that we might walk in the ways of the Lord. Oh, Father, we need your power and your grace to do this. Help us to be the household of God that Paul writes to Timothy, that we would walk in obedience to you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by telling you a story about Peter Wohlleben. I'm just going to call him Peter because he has a German last name. I don't really want to say that again. <laughs> Peter spent over 20 years working for the Forestry Commission in Germany where he would inspect trees 
to see which one would be used for lumber. He ended up learning much more than he imagined about trees. And he actually left his job to run an environmentally friendly woodland in Germany. And he's written many books about trees. In one of his books, he tells the story of walking through the forest and noticing a patch of strange-looking mossy stones. He had walked by these stones many times. But one day, he stopped to examine them. Carefully, he lifted up the moss that was covering them, and he found out they actually weren't stones at all. There was tree bark underneath this moss. So he took out his pocket knife, and he cut a small piece of bark away to see what was underneath. And he was shocked to see that underneath it was green. This tree was still alive. What he thought was stones was, was something else. He, he stood up and he looked around him and he suddenly realized that these, what he thought were stones, formed a distinct pattern. They were arranged in a circle. He was standing in the middle of them. What he had stumbled across was an enormous ancient tree stump whose inside had rotted out, and he could see the edge of this tree. It had probably been cut down, based on his studies, about 500 years ago. But how was this tree still living? It was a stump that was basically all rotted out, but it was still alive. It was green. Living cells must have food in the form of sugar. They must breathe. They must grow. But without leaves... How could this stump survive? There was no way for it to get nutrients from its leaves because there was no leaves left. It seemed impossible. So he came to learn that this tree was getting assistance from neighboring trees. Trees in a forest, he describes, are like a family. And when one gets hurt, when one gets chopped down, often those neighboring trees will come and support one another through the root system. So the roots of the other trees, of this family of trees, had actually come to the assistance of this tree that was in aid and had kept it alive for over 500 years. He had discovered that trees support one another. They come to the aid of those within their family. And in our passage today, Paul continues to instruct Timothy that the church should be that type of family, that the church should be that type of family that supports those who are in need, that supports those who are hurt. They are also to come to the aid of the destitute, to link arms with those who have nowhere else to turn. So looking at this passage, we can see the church is encouraged to do three things. First, they're encouraged to support the needy. Second, to be wise with their resources, and third, to give because we have received. So again, the three points are, first, support the needy, second, be wise with the resources, and third, give because you have received. We see the main point of the passage in the first verse, chapter 5, verse 3, which is put in the form of a command. Look at 5, verse 3 with me. What does Paul say to Timothy? He says, honor widows who are truly widows. Honor is actually the word that brings the next few texts into coherency. So if you look down in your text at 517, 
Notice that he says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor. There's our word again. And then go down again to 6.1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So he's kind of picking out these different people in these groups in the church and saying, honor them, honor them, honor them. First, he deals with widows, then elders. And then he speaks to slaves who are called to honor their masters. And here, I think honor means to support financially. Actually, some translations even just translate that word as support. Support those who are truly widows. But why does he single out widows here and spend so much time on them? If you actually look throughout all of 1 Timothy, this is the longest section devoted to a group of people in all of 1 Timothy. 5, 3 through 16, he has a lot to say about widows and about how you are to care for them. Widows are simply those whose husbands have died. And widows at this time were at a great disadvantage. You have to remember, this was before the time of Social Security, before the time of unemployment checks, before the time of food stamps. There was no government coming to your aid, and there was hardly any middle class. You were either rich, living in luxury, or you were poor, living meal by meal. And to make matters worse, most women, not all, but most gained their wealth through their husband. It was through the work women did with their spouse that they provided for themselves. Often the husband would go work in the field while the wife would run the business from the home. So when a woman lost her husband, she often didn't have the resources coming in to then sell from the home to continue to support herself. So you have to put yourself in this situation. It's a different situation than ours. You are an elderly woman. Your husband dies. You have no money, no hope, no future. You don't know how you're going to eat your next meal. And Paul instructs Timothy that the church is to be a family. That the church is to be a family. A place where those in need are taken care of. Paul instructs the church to honor, to support those who are truly widows. And if you know the story of of the scriptures, this is actually not a new command. This is what the people of God have always been commanded to do, to care for the needy amongst them. God is very concerned. We could trace this from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God is very concerned that the church support the needy, and especially widows. Look at Deuteronomy 10.18. It's it's going to be on the screen behind him. It says, he, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the who? The widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Or look at Exodus 22.22. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. These are commands to Israel, the community of God in the Old Testament. And he says, do not take advantage of them. I care for these people especially, and you are too as well. Or James 1.27, James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So according to 1 Timothy, what does it look like to be the family of God? What does it look like to be the family of God? We might be prone to think, well, it's believing certain things. 
or being absorbed in this doctrine or the offices of the church or how we worship or who preaches and who doesn't. And I don't want to downplay these things because actually Paul speaks to all these things. But it's more than that. It's way more than that. Paul also says the family of God is not only a believing community, but a community of action. A community of deeds, of care, of support, of honor, of generosity. The church is to put flesh on its faith. To be living with their hands as much as their heads. As James says, faith without works is dead. Let me put this plainly. You can't be a healthy church if you neglect the needy amongst you. Even if you have really good doctrine, you're not a healthy church if you're not supporting the needy amongst you. A church without works is already in the casket. They're already dead. Paul says, honor these widows. Honor them. I remember Mark Dever saying something to the effect of, if your Christianity causes you to sit down and read a bunch of books, but doesn't compel you, to drive an elderly person to church in the morning, then your Christianity doesn't reflect New Testament Christianity. And I think that's true. You have to ask yourself, does your Christianity smell more like the library or does it smell more like real life? Are you willing to get your hands dirty? Are you really willing to actually go out and have actions that prove what you believe? So Emmaus, How are you doing on this front? Are we known as a church that helps those in need? And if you have a passion for this, please come speak to us. We want to continue to grow in this. One of the reasons why we are shifting how we do deacons is actually to do this more and more. And in the near future, we're actually going to start an initiative where we might know more needs within our community to help serve and support those in North Kansas City especially. So we want to continue to grow in these things. We don't think we've arrived in these things. That's why this text, it comes to us. This wouldn't be the text I naturally pick to preach on. But as you preach through the Bible, it hits us and it says, we need to grow in this. We need to continue to do these things. So that's the first point. We are called to support the needy. Second, that's not all Paul has to say. He also instructs us not to be irresponsible with our honor or with our support but to be wise with our resources. In essence, he says, you can be discriminate with your care. You, can, you, you actually need to serve those who are truly in need. In verse 3, he says, honor widows who are what? Truly widows. Three times he says that in this passage. 5.3, five, 5.5, five, five, and 5.16. He calls them truly widows, implying that there are false widows. Maybe people who will take advantage of systems. And this is really practical for the church. Many times churches are called and people say, hey, take care of me. You're the church. This is what you're called to do. And there's some truth to that. But this text reminds us that generosity can also be discerning and it can include assessment, evaluation, and wise thinking. You all probably know stories of those taking advantage of people's generosity. In college, I lived off campus uh, with three or four other guys, and this was around the years of, two, or around 2006. And one day, 
someone came to our door and he was asking for money to go see his daughter who was sick in Florida. He needed a bus ticket for that. And my friend uh, heard his story. It was a very detailed story. And he just said, I really need, I don't have a car. I really need to get to Florida. I need a bus ticket. I don't have enough money. So my friend, he gave him $40. We were involved in a church. We wanted to be generous, so he gave him $40. He said, I hope you can go see your daughter. That's great. Later on that week, we had to run an errand to Walmart, and the same guy came up to us as we were getting in the car. He didn't recognize us. We recognized him. This time, though, he had a whole new story about some medical bill he couldn't pay, and he asked us for money. My friend laughed at him, and he said, don't you recognize me? I just gave you 40 bucks yesterday to go visit your daughter. The guy's mouth dropped open, and he slowly backed away. Well, Paul, he gives qualifications or conditions for a true widow. He says, I don't want to just you to give your money to anyone. They actually have to qualify for this. That might sound harsh, but he wants what? There to be enough resources for those who are truly in need. So the qualifications he gives in terms of being wise with our resources boil down to three Financial, practical, and ethical qualifications. Financial, practical, and ethical qualifications. First, Paul reminds Timothy that widows should be supported only if they are truly in need. In other words, if they are destitute financially, if they have no other means to support themselves. Paul especially relates this to them being alone, that they have no one else to care for them. We see this in several verses. Look at 5.4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them show godliness to their own household. In other words, if the family can support them, let the family support them first. In 5.5, he calls a true widow one who is left all alone. In other words, who has no family to support her. In 5.8, Paul commands the family to provide for their relatives. In 5.16, he says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let them care for her first. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the first qualification is they need to have no one else to care for them. This reality of the family caring for their own first teaches us an important lesson about giving and about generosity. Paul believes in something that we could call moral proximity. The idea is that you have more responsibility for those who are closer to you than those who are further from you. What does that mean? You need to have spheres in your mind in, in terms of who your primary responsibility is for. Your family is first, then the church, then your neighborhood, then your city, then your state, then your nation, then the world. You can kind of see it going out in co-centric circles. That's what I think Paul is saying. At, saying. He's saying, look, the family needs to take care of her first. But if they cannot, then the church needs to step in and help. He assumes the church is a type of people who will take care of those within their family if there is no one left to take care of these widows. And in 5.8, Paul says something. He doesn't mince words, does he? What does he say in 5.8? But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. So life financially, for most people, usually works on a bell curve. Not everyone. It works on a bell curve. You start out with nothing. 
You're born, you have no resources, right? And your parents give you literally everything, food, clothing, and you're able to survive through your parents. You grow older, maybe you get married, and you get a job that can pay you a little more as you perfect your craft. Then, if you're married and you have children, it reverses. You start giving all that money to your children. I have four kids. I think I've bought 10,000 shoes already. There's so many shoes in our house. Then you get old, and you stop working. And until very recently, you basically lose all your income. Paul's idea of financial provision is that just as your parents supported you when you needed it, then when they can't work anymore, you turn around and you support them. You turn around and you support them. So he says, church, the families in the church, you need to support those within your own family. Another way to put it is if your parents are buying you lunch now, there's going to come a time where you need to buy your parents lunch. And all the parents said, amen. Aren't we looking forward to that? That'll be a great day. This reminds us that the primary responsibility is for you to care for your family. I remember one of my former pastors would speak to the congregation this way. He would say, I plan on being with you until the day my parents need help. In other words, he looked at that verse, 5.8, and he said, I don't want to be worse than an unbeliever. I care for you. I love you. But if my parents need help, According to Paul, that's my first responsibility. And again, we need to be reminded of this side of practical Christianity. Maybe you are the type who has a mission in life that maybe even has to do with gospel ministry. But when it comes to mow the lawn, shovel the snow, or go help your parents, you suddenly disappear. Or maybe you're a kid in here, and you fight with your siblings over what is yours, rather than having a spirit of generosity and openness with your resources. Kids, this type of generous attitude starts now. Are you going to share with those who are closest to you? Because when you share with those who are closest to you, usually that means you start to share actually with even more. It starts in the home. Are you going to be generous with your resources? That's what Paul's getting at. Real Christianity, real religion, shows itself in the practical. If your Christianity doesn't work at home, It doesn't work. Let me say that again. If your Christianity doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. Paul's main point is he wants the church to use their resources wisely. They are to give to widows who don't have others to provide for them. The families to step in first, and if they don't have family, the churches to step in and to support them. So that's the financial qualification. Second, practical qualification. The second qualification for someone who is truly needy is what we could call the practical qualification. We can see this in a few verses. 5.9, it says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. 5.11 says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. Essentially, Paul says, younger widows have other options, but an older widow should be supported. Younger women were not to be put on this list for support because they could remarry. And I think this age is contextual. In this society, to live past 40 meant you were old. And so to say that you are 60 was actually quite significant. They would not be getting remarried at that point in that society. The average age of the population now continues to rise. So I think we need to think through what sort of qualification would we want to have. Maybe we don't put an age on it now. 
but you start to think, do you have other options? This is the practical qualification. Again, this is helpful for us because people often come to the church and ask for resources. And certainly there's a time to help people get on their feet. But the time also comes when one has to say, you are able-bodied, you are young enough, you have resources, you need to first try to provide for yourself. We say these things not to be mean, not to be stingy, but to allow the church to be generous with those who are truly in bad shape. Idealism is great in theory, but the reality is there are limited resources. And if the church gives to anyone who comes calling, the church will not have enough for those who truly need it. The third qualification Paul gives is ethical qualifications. We can see that in several verses. In 5.4, it says the widows are to learn godliness. In 5.5, Paul says this support is for those who have set their hope on God and continue in supplications and prayers night and day. In 5.6, he criticizes those who are self-indulgent. In 5, 9 through 10, he says the widow is to have been faithful to her husband, to have a reputation for good works, to have shown hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, caring for the afflicted, and devoting herself to every good work. In some, there needs to be a godliness to the widows who are supported. And while this letter is known for Paul's famous words about women and teaching, notice that Paul assumes these women are doing significant ministry in the church. He views the church as a family where men and women are linking arms and doing ministry. You could take this too far, but actually notice that he expects these widows to have some of the qualifications of a pastor. Faithful to their spouse, showing good works, and showing hospitality. Those are the same thing that, that occur in the elder qualifications. In the church, it's not only the pastors who are doing the work of ministry. No, it's the whole congregation, even these elderly widows. He's expecting them to be doing the work of the ministry. These, and this is, this is important for us to see, because these are not only women to be ministered to. They are ministers in the congregation. Don't you love that? He doesn't just view them as needy. He views them as actually supporting the ministry of the church. I think more pastors need to be talking to older folks and saying, look, don't move to Florida or California or wherever it is. You have come into your life now in a time where you can uniquely serve. Stay here. Serve the congregation. Disciple people who are younger than you. Stay. You have maybe more time now. Give that to the church. I think that's what Paul is encouraging here. So we have all of these qualifications for giving. Now, here's the problem. Many times when we hear these qualifications, we use it as an excuse not to be generous. Well, they're choosing to be homeless. Well, they're not old enough. Well, they're lazy. They're not super Christians. I would expect more from them. So, but let me put this plainly. If you never give to the poor because no one meets your qualifications, then you're not obeying this text. If you never give to the poor because no one meets your qualifications, you're not obeying this text. Paul isn't giving excuses not to give. His aim is for there to be enough resources for those who truly need it. 
Remember the purpose of these qualifications. He says it in 5.16. Look at that verse. Let the church not be burdened so that it may what? Care for those who are truly widows. That's his aim. He wants the church to care for those who are truly widows. His goal is that the church has enough resources to do so. So he says, use your resources wisely. Now, in some sense, this whole sermon could be agreed upon by people outside of the church. Give generously, support the needy, and be wise. You could hear that anywhere. You could hear that at a secular university. Philanthropy, giving to the poor, is actually really popular. I read this week, Lululemon has pledged $75 million to supporting physical, social, and mental well-being. They love giving their money away. They want to be a company who does that. You can't buy a pair of shoes anymore without them advertising how many shoes go out to the rest of the world. Or how many organic resources they're using. I know that's not the right word, but you know what I mean, right? And this is good. I think that's, that's great that many companies are actually doing this sort of thing. But as Christians, we have a deeper reason for being generous. We have a deeper reason for being generous. We ultimately give because we know that we are those who have received. We are those who have received. The gospel story that we believe tells us that we are all the needy ones. We are all the needy ones. The prophet Ezekiel speaks to us, or speaks of us as infants who are cast aside on the side of the road to die. We were naked and bloody and dirty and despised. No one pitied us. No one cared for us. We were rejected, but when our God passed by us, when he saw us wallowing in our neediness, when no one else would take us up, he took us up in his arms. He came to us and he said, live. He spread his garment over us and covered us. He entered into a covenant with us. He washed us. He rinsed us of our blood. He anointed us with oil. He adorned us with jewelry. He put a crown upon our heads. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is the gospel that we are all needy. Last night, we watched an episode of The Chosen, which is the story of Jesus and his disciples. And last night, we watched the episode where the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touched the hem of Jesus' cloak. And he, in this show, he bent down and he said to her, Oh, daughter, how you have suffered. You must be exhausted. She was needy, and Christ came to her, and we are all her. We are all the ones who need to touch the hem of Christ's garment, to receive the healing that he brings. And Paul tells us we give because Christ has come to us. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, when instructing them on on the collection. He's coming to take. So Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, hey, I need you all to be generous. We need to support the church in Jerusalem. And why does he tell them to give? In one verse, he tells us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. As Christians, we are willing to become poor 
because our Savior became poor. Though he was rich, though he resided in heaven, though he had all authority, yet he took on weakness, he took on flesh. And ultimately, he went to the cross. He died in the most shameful way, completely destitute of all what? Honor. No honor on the cross. All shame. And he hung there for all those to see. The Son of God, the one who resided in heaven, was crucified as a common criminal. Yet he became poor, that we might become rich. That we might become rich. He died this death so that we might be clothed with immortality and with light. That we might share in his glory. We give ultimately as Christians, not because it's popular, but because we believe this gospel story. We believe that we are called to imitate our Savior who became poor that we might become rich. So we are willing to become poor that others might become rich. That is the warp and woof of what we believe. So if you are not being radically generous, we have to ask the question, has this story shaped your life? Has it become the compass for every action you take? Has it become the grid through which you see the world? Has it so enveloped you that your natural reaction is to have a generous spirit with those around you? And if not, then he says, come. Press into this new way of life. Give and you will receive. Give and you will receive. For with the abundance that you give, it will be given in abundance back to you. Just like Abraham, he left everything. And God said, I will give you a greater family and a greater land. And we are in Abraham. He commands us the same thing. He says, leave everything. And I will give you more than you can imagine. You will never be sorry for giving. You will never be sorry for giving. And you know that's true. It brings you so much more joy to see others flourish and be happy and be provided to than to spend it on yourself. When you spend it on yourself, don't you just feel empty? When you give to others, the joy of the Lord fills you. I began with the story of how a family of trees link their root systems together to support a tree within their family who is in need. They preserve the life of this tree for hundreds of years. Paul likewise wants the church to be a family, to help those who are in need. One of the most famous stories of a widow in the Bible concerns Ruth. Concerns Ruth. She was in need. But Boaz, her what? Kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Her family, right? Her family saw her, and he fought for her. He came to her in kindness in her time of need. He didn't look down on her. He saw the strength in her, and he honored her. And he honored her. That is what Christ has done for us. He is our kinsman redeemer who honors us. He calls us to also care for those who are needy amongst us. Let's pray that that would be so. Father, we come before you recognizing that we haven't always done what you have commanded, but we ask that you would give us the joy of the Lord that we might do so. Oh God, help us to be those who have a generous spirit, who are quick 
to give of our resources so that others might be blessed with the love of the Lord. Oh God, we need your help in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now to our time of communion where we not only hear what the Lord has done for us, but we taste and we see what he has done for us. At this table, we eat and drink because we recognize we are needy. We are starving. We need his sustenance. Christ has provided for us ultimately by giving of himself. He's been generous with us because that is his nature. So as we eat and drink of him, we do so with thanksgiving. And then as we are sustained by him, we turn and we act in a similar way to those around us. Jesus instituted this meal for his people at the Last Supper with his disciples. And this is why this is a family meal. It's for those who are part of God's family and have pledged their lives to following Jesus. If you are not a part of this family, we ask that you stay in your seat and consider what God is creating on this earth, this family of people who will support one another and care for one another in this way. Don't you want to be a part of that? All you have to do is pledge your life to Jesus Christ. And he offers himself to you, to every single one of you. He says, come to me. Come to me. I will make your burden light. And you can join this family of people who have pledged their lives to following him. At Emmaus, we come down the aisle to your right, and you receive hand sanitizer, and then you receive the elements. Let's come and eat and drink, because your Savior has provided for you. Come, eat and drink. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmaus KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.